Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Andres. Abolitionists are committed to creating a world without police and prisons. But what alternative visions and practices of addressing intimate harm might point the way towards such a world? In today's episode, Beyond Punishment, the movement for transformative justice, we explore efforts to reimagine the politics of violence, harm, safety, and redress, spearheading practices of accountability and healing that move beyond the punitive logic of the carceral state. We speak with Mia Mingus from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective about alternatives to carceral feminism and how the movement to end child sexual abuse points the way toward radically reimagining practices of justice. We then turn to a conversation with Claudia Garcia Rojas, co-director of the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, alongside Maya Shinwar, editor-in-chief of Truthout and author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. But first, here's Kaif Syed with some news you may have missed. On June 11th, a group of prison abolitionists, including the family members of some of those incarcerated, marched to the home of the director of the Michigan Department of Corrections, Heidi Washington. On the suburban street and sidewalk, they staged a solitary torture demonstration to pressure her to let the remaining 70 Kinross rebels out of administrative segregation or solitary confinement. They had been in administrative segregation for nine months following their alleged participation in the Kinross uprising on September 10th, 2016. Toward the end of June, the prisoners inside El Dorado Correctional Facility in southern Kansas participated in a nonviolent demonstration, protesting the conditions they are forced to live and work in. The men refused to return to their cells and occupied several parts of the prison for a significant portion of the day, demonstrating how overcrowding within the facility had reached unsustainable levels. The strikers eventually returned to their cells with no reports of immediate retaliation. Their dissent raised concerns within the state's government about the number of people incarcerated, but officials from El Dorado insist that there is no cause for worry. This uprising is only the latest in the long and proud history of prisoner rebellion, but will undoubtedly not be the last. On June 28th, hundreds gathered in protests outside Jamesburg Prison, the largest youth detention center in the state of New Jersey. The protesters called for the closure of the 150-year-old youth prison and highlighted the institution's failure to prevent recidivism and its history of racism. See news from the streets at rustbeltradio.org for links to these news items. I'm A. Maria, here with Kaif Syed, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. What are the ways we can address issues and conflicts in our communities without resorting to the violence and authority of the state? How can producing processes of accountability independent of the so-called justice system strengthen our families and neighborhoods? These are the kinds of questions abolitionists ask. Co-producer David Langstaff spoke with Mia Mingus, national disability justice and transformative justice activist and writer, about her work with the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective to build and support responses to child sexual abuse that don't rely upon police and prisons, and the ways in which these emergent practices of accountability and redress contain the seeds of a world beyond racial capitalism and the carceral state. Hi, my name is Mia Mangus, and I am a transformative justice organizer. I do a lot of disability justice work as well, and specifically the transformative justice work that I do, I focus on child sexual abuse, but I also end up responding to lots of different types of violence. You were recently a contributor to a special issue of the new inquiry centered upon the theme of abolition. What does abolition mean to you as a critical framework for thought and practice, as a vision of the world as it could be, or as a plot, as Ruthie Gilmore poignantly puts it? 
So when I think about abolition, what it means to me is not only getting rid of prisons and dismantling the prison industrial complex, but it also to me is a lot broader than that about getting rid of and dismantling and challenging the culture of prisons and the ways in which we have internalized all of that. So whether that's a culture of disposability, whether that's a culture of criminalization, you know, always bound up with capitalism and oppression and trauma. So for me, I feel like when I think of abolition, it's a much larger project than just no prisons. It's also about how do we abolish the prison state inside of us too, so that we're not just throwing people away or, you know, using punitive measures, even in our own relationships and worlds. So for those of us engaged in various forms of movement building against and beyond racial capitalism on the carceral state, one of the questions commonly put to us is, what would we do without police and prisons? What about the murderers, the rapists, and others that symbolically stand in for being irrevocably depraved? How would we deal with real questions of violence and harm, of safety, accountability, and healing? And how does the framework of transformative justice, which has been central to your writing and activism, address these questions? First and foremost, if we were really concerned with the murderers and the rapists and the serial killers, you know, the largest one we have at hand is the state. So it's a both and to me. One is obviously a critique around how we understand quote unquote crime and violence and that so much state sanctioned violence doesn't get integrated into that understanding or analysis. But then there's the other piece of it, which is the more pragmatic piece of it, which is you can critique and critique all day long. But at the end of the day, really, what are we going to do about serial rapists, for example, or people who have abused their partners for the last 60 years you know these are real questions and I think that our movements I don't even know if I would call it a movement the kind of field of transformative justice what I love is that I feel like those folks who are actually trying to put transformative justice in practice I think it's good that we don't shy away from those things and that while the poetics of transformative justice sounds really beautiful and is really compelling you know yes nobody is disposable yes everybody deserves healing and we want want to humanize offenders and recognize the humanity and dignity of everybody. Those poetics sound really wonderful, but in practice, they're much harder to make happen and to live out. And so when I think about the larger, broader project of transformative justice, it needs to happen on lots and lots of different levels. And we need to have multiple strategies and long-term strategies. You know, I think where we are right now in terms of this historical moment is we're still in the phase of transformative justice where we're doing a lot of experimentation and where we're learning a lot more. Every day, we're learning all the things that we didn't even know we needed to learn. I think we're still so much at the beginning of experimenting and trying out these different models and things like that. And so, you know, I think for right now, there is a sense of a lot of us of how do we pick the low-hanging fruit and learn as much as we can and build up a foundation to the larger cases. And so when people ask me those questions, I think they're very valid. And I also feel like it's twofold. Yes, we want to figure out how to address some of these larger problems and how to address some of the folks who are probably the hardest to address in terms of accountability and transformation and change. And at the same time, I think that our revolutionary imaginations can only go so far, but as we practice and as we keep using them, they can go farther and farther and farther. Much of your work has been centered on transformative justice as a means of confronting, ending, and creating a world beyond child sexual abuse. In what ways does transformative justice depart from the mainstream movement against domestic and sexual violence, particularly with regard to the latter's reliance upon increased policing, prosecution, and imprisonment as putative mechanisms of prevention and redress, a tendency that abolitionists, queer feminists of color in particular, have critiqued as a kind of carceral feminism? Why is it carceral feminism an acceptable response to these terrible forms of violence? 
Carceral feminism is not an acceptable response to the levels of violence and harm that we see every day for so many reasons. I mean, so there's two parts to this question. One is that it's not effective. Regardless of what you think about prisons, what you think about the state, it's just not effective. Just continuing to lock people up and lock people up. And we've had at least now, what, a good 25, 30 years of this. And granted, there were a lot of people, specifically feminists and women of color, who were saying, this is not the right strategy. For example, the DV movement that started with radical roots and then ended up getting in bed with the state. A lot of people knew this is not the way to go. But that's where we're at now. So there's one part that is to say we've done this for decades now and continue to lock people up, done the strategies of criminalization and punishment, and they haven't necessarily made our communities safer. And many people would argue that they've actually made our communities much, much less safe. There are still millions and millions of people in communities that fall through the cracks. So whether you're talking about immigrant women who are in abusive relationships, who are being actively isolated, not only by their abusers, but then actively isolated because they don't don't speak the language because they may not have documentation because they may not have access to get earning an income all of the different things that um, immigration and poverty and xenophobia set up and white supremacy misogyny all the rest of it you know and I think about disabled people who might be being abused by their caregivers who are being severely isolated and or services out there that may not be accessible to disabled people to use and then there's the other piece of it which is that it's actively harmful <laughs> and that continuing to rely on prisons and to rely on police and to rely on the criminal legal system in the state, whether it's the foster care system, ICE, etc., is actively harming so many of our communities, especially communities of color, immigrant communities, disabled communities, queer and trans people of color community. I mean, we could go on and on and on, poor communities. The state positions itself as a protector when we know that the state uses the very kinds of violence that they say they want to protect, well, really just their citizens from, let's be real. And so if they use these same types of violence, how and why would they have a vested interest in ending them? I think for a lot of us, because we live in such oppressive, violent conditions and a fascist country, really, and society, we're grinding out people's imaginations and grinding out people's ability to even imagine something else as possible is such a defining part of what it means to live in the U.S. today. Can you tell us more concretely about the work of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, of which you've been a member? So the BATJC, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, we are made up of individuals, community members. We're not a nonprofit. Nobody gets paid. Uh, We all show up because this is part of our life's work. We work to build and sustain transformative justice responses to child sexual abuse. And so part of our work is figuring out what are the conditions that we can build, what kind of conditions can we create that could actually support transformative justice responses to child sexual abuse, meaning responses to child sexual abuse that don't rely on the state and that actively work to cultivate the things that we know will prevent future incidences of child sexual abuse, but any form of violence from happening. And because child sexual abuse is often bound up with lots of different types of violence, we end up working on lots of different types of violence as well. And one of the ways that we've been doing that lately is through this concept of pods that we've been using. Your pod are the people that you would call on if violence happened to you, or if you did violence, or if you witnessed violence, or if somebody you know was violently targeted or did violence. 
we were using a lot of the terms of community, community responses to violence, community accountability, but the term community became very confusing because a lot of people have very different ideas about what what community means. And a lot of people feel like, especially I feel like in the West, don't feel like they've experienced community, even at the same time as, as they long deeply for community. What we were trying to figure out was how do we specifically name the kind of relationship that characterizes the people that you would call on around violence or around crisis and what we found was that it wasn't necessarily your closest people because that was oftentimes where the violence was coming from and that actually people had very specific criteria for their pod people (laughs) I don't know how much more sci-fi we can get even within your pod people the people that you would call on if you were a survivor of violence for example are very different oftentimes than the people you would call on if you were trying to take accountability for harm or violence or abuse that you've done and still that they also might be very different than the people you would call on to support you if somebody you love was trying to take accountability for violence and or was targeted around violence. So we came up with this language of pods and um, it's just been really useful for us in terms of trying to identify, really reveal back a network of pods. And it was also a very sobering process to do this because I feel like a lot of folks, especially seasoned activists and organizers, it was a sobering process for them to realize that they actually didn't have as many people as they thought these needed to be reliable relationships where you could count on them to show up. Relationships where you could have nuanced kinds of conversations about accountability without it falling into collusion or minimizing, right? Like, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it. It wasn't that bad. Or demonization as well as survivor support. You know, I think that we often think like, oh, survivor support, that seems pretty easy. But most of the time, people, again, fall into a binary of either shaming and blaming survivors, even if they don't mean to, or just minimizing the entire thing or or paternalizing. They're totally helpless. They can't do anything. And so rather than, rather than saying, okay, well, we're going to take the, you know, six years or five years it takes to build enough trust to even be able to say, hey, I did CSA or I survived CSA, we just learned through our work that, oh, people actually already had folks in their lives, even if it was just one person. And this is true across the board, that most times people don't call a hotline, they don't call the police, they call a trusted friend, confidant, somebody, what we would call their pod people. So pods has been a great way for us to think about how do we set the conditions for transformative justice responses. So that's one of the things we do. So you've spoken several times to the violent regulation of the imagination and the ways in which that shapes the turn to carcerality as a putative means of addressing harm, as well as the difficulty of imagining other worlds and other ways of being in the world. The work of building a movement for abolition can often feel overwhelming and disheartening, especially in a historical moment, such as the one in which we find ourselves, in which the forces arrayed against us are ascendant. What advice would you give to abolitionists struggling around questions of survival, resilience, creating new relations of collective care, and protecting the sense of possibility that animates the radical imagination. I think that transformative justice is one of the key parts of sustainability for abolition movements. The overwhelmingness can come from feeling like we have to do everything all the time, all at once. One thing that's been helpful for me in terms of sustainability has been getting really clear on what my role is. And I think for anybody who's doing liberatory work, that's essential. What is your role? Is your role resistance work, right? The act, like the shutting down of the prisons, the shutting down of these juvenile detention centers, resistance in terms of campaigns and pushing back against the world we don't want, essentially. Or is your 
major role building alternatives and building the world that we do want and that we long for because it's too large. If you feel like it's all up to you, you will burn out faster. The other piece of that too is it requires of you that you realize that you are in a legacy of work. We're not going to end violence and harm and abuse in one generation, one campaign, one organization. We need generational strategies, long-term visions that can stretch over generations for this work. We need to resist against the world we don't want and also actively build the world we do want. I don't think that we can do one or the other. We know what we're fighting against. We know that maybe too well. (laughs) I think interpersonal violence, intimate violence, sexual violence, domestic violence, things like that can be harder to imagine justice for sometimes than state violence because what you're talking about are your relationships with oftentimes the people who matter most to you in your life that are very complex. And when you're faced with the question of figuring out what am I actively fighting for? The active, literal exercising of our imaginations is part of how we concretely build resilience. Well, thank you so much, Mia, for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. At the 2017 Allied Media Conference in Detroit, we spoke with Maya Shenwar, editor-in-chief of Truth Out and author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better, as well as Claudia Garcia Rojas, co-author of Reporting on Rape and Sexual Violence, a media toolkit for journalists to better media coverage, which was published through the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, an organization that she co-directs. I'm Claudia Garcia Rojas. I'm Chicago-based, and the work that I primarily have always done is around sexual violence. And so I recently joined Love and Protect, and I've also served as co-director of the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women. I'm Maya Shenwar. I'm the editor-in-chief of Truth Out, which is a social justice news organization. A lot of my work centers around the prison industrial complex, and I'm also an organizer with Love and Protect in Chicago and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. In your book, Lockdown, Locked Out, you point to the ways in which incarceration not only fails to address the roots of social violence, but in fact compounds and exacerbates existing structures of violence. Can you tell us why the carceral state isn't an answer to the social dilemmas we face? I'm going to do that in three words. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you kind of hit on the core of it. I had a pen pal who was in Pelican Bay Prison, and he was there for a rape conviction. And he told me, like, he would write me these letters saying, I'm innocent. And then he would describe what happened that led to his conviction, And I thought, that's rape, you know? And so he was in solitary confinement. He had been there for eight years and had actually seven more to go on his sentence. And he, obviously, prison had not even taught him the definition of rape. So it's like the idea that prison addresses sexual violence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or changes anything for the future in terms Mm -hmm. of sexual violence is... I think fundamentally flawed. The question that we're asked is then, what is the alternative, right? What is the alternative to that? What kind of transformative visions and practices uh, have prison abolitionists been building at the grassroots? I think that one of the ways in which we need to address that question is thinking about the things that are criminalized. Mm -hmm. Because 
not everything that's defined as a crime currently and for which people are incarcerated needs to have an alternative. A lot of people are still saying, instead of prison, people who are arrested for drug possession should go to treatment, actually like a lockdown treatment center, because they need treatment, not prison. And I look at that and I'm like, okay, so that assumes that criminalizing drugs is actually a thing that we should still be doing in society. And it's the same thing with sex work, that sex workers should be rescued. That's the alternative to prison. And I think that that's true for, for so many things we call crime, mm -hmm. because crime is, is really a different thing from harm. And we have to, I think, get past the idea that because something is against the law, that it's actually a thing that has harmed someone and needs to be addressed in a way that involves a response, particularly a response on the part of the state. Then there's also the question of, okay, so what do we do about the things that are actually harmful? And I think that when we address that question, it's not just about alternatives to prison, because so many things that are harmful in our society are actually not criminalized. And the example I always like to use is possession of crack cocaine is criminalized, but for the United States to have possession of nuclear weapons is not a crime. From there, that's where we have to start approaching our, our creative solutions and our transformative justice and our restorative justice mm -hmm. is like not from a place of like replacing all the things that prison is used for, but thinking about what's actually causing harm and then mm -hmm. thinking about mass decriminalization. And I would just say that in terms of what that would look like, this move to abolish prisons, it depends on each individual community. I don't think that there can be a one-size-fit-all response. And as Maya was saying, we're not looking to replace the practices that currently prisons sort of fill or engage in, but we're looking to actually abolish those practices of punishment and discipline and, and correction and actually find different solutions for some of the issues that we might have. And so I don't think that there's necessarily an answer to that, right? Because I think that those answers need to be developed in community and they need to be organic and they might not all be the same. Let's close off with another practical question. What other concrete strategies, sort of tactics, everyday practices, those of us committed to abolition can sort of focus on both in the short term and the long term? To me, the most important things to focus on in terms of abolition involve growing and building the society that we actually want that would address the social problems that lead to harm. In that sense, I'm not talking about transformative or restorative justice. I'm talking about health care, mental health care, child care, uh, lots of care words, interestingly. <laughs> the arts, jobs, housing, food, all of these things, and not just adequate housing, adequate food, but we know that actually there's enough so that we could all be living comfortably. What would our society look like in relation to harm and violence if that were shifted? Because we talk about survival crimes and like criminalized survivors and that type of thing, but really almost all crime is survival crime because people are surviving really 
difficult economic circumstances and economic violence. People are surviving mental illness and drug addiction. People are surviving homelessness. People are surviving poverty. So if we think about all of these things, we can sort of begin to piece together the fact that we need to be challenging capitalism if we're going to get to abolition. And the other piece of that is that we need to be challenging the structures that led to imprisonment in the first place. So we need to be challenging white supremacy and colonialism. And right now we think prison is natural. Prison is the natural response to crime. But when you look at prison, particularly in the United States, it's an institution that evolved out of slavery. We see police evolved out of slave patrols and also Indian constables. So this is also a product of colonialism. We see that the system that has been built has been constructed to replace these previous oppressive institutions. And of course, there's a lot that's been written about that by Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Michelle Alexander. And I think that that we see the way these chronicles of history play out and we have to say, okay, if we're going to dismantle this and build something new, it's not just about dismantling the buildings called prisons. It's about dismantling these systems of oppression. The other thing that I would say is I think some of the most productive and radical work is happening at the grassroots level, always has and perhaps always will. So communities coming together to think through what are some of the local issues that they want to see change in their their local areas. That's not going to look the same for everyone, but I think just being imaginative and thinking through what are some projects that we could come up with. And I think in Chicago, we've had a very excellent mentor for how to do that, specifically with Miriam Kaba, right? One of the questions I remember when I first started working with her is like, how can we change the ways in which media reports on rape and sexual violence? And I was handed this project to come up with a media guide. You know, it was very young. I was younger at the time, but I did it, right? And that has put me in a trajectory where I started off as someone that believed in prisons and now I identify as a prison abolitionist. I think that that is an example of how we can transform people in communities. It's just local projects, like what gaps need to be filled. And people want to do things and they want to be in community. And so I think that this gets people to come together and organize collectively. The other thing is I think we're at a moment where we need a lot of political education political education is critically important. And one of the things that I try and do with my students, this question that Socrates would always ask, and that's what is X? Fill in the gap. We need to be asking questions about what is justice? What do we mean when we say justice right now in terms of how it's defined for us? What do we mean even when we're talking about abolition? There are so many thinkers that have written on abolition and there are so many ways in which it's talked about. I think that that's a term that's like kind of catching currency right now, but I think people always need to just engage in literature and continue reading about the work that people have done previously and to always engage like these concepts and these ideas because we hear them often, we see them on social media, but that doesn't mean we actually understand them thoroughly. And so we need to better understand what these concepts mean in order to mobilize that language for our messaging and also in developing our goals as to what it is that we want to do and how it is that we want to change our society. Well, thank you so much for both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Abolitionists continue to identify and build on resources that exist among our communities. 
chief among them are resilience and imagination. To this end, the 2017 Allied Media Conference included two network gatherings, No Perfect Victims, in which survivors of violence and their supporters, struggling at intersections of gender violence and criminalization, strategized about how to deepen local efforts and build a long-term transnational agenda through coalition building and cross-movement coordination, as well as Families United for Justice, a growing frontline collective of families affected by police violence, who convened in order to share skills with one another and create a tangible and collective vision of justice and reparations. The same day of the gatherings in the Rust Belt city of St. Paul, Minnesota, Valerie Castile delivered the following address to a crowd gathered in front of the local courthouse in response to the acquittal of the police officer who murdered her only child, Philando Castile, nearly one year prior. These are some things that you need to know and recognize. There has always been a systemic problem in the state of Minnesota, and me thinking with my common sense that we would get justice in this case, but nevertheless, it never seems to fail us. The system continues to fail black people, and they will continue to fail you all. Like I said, because this happened with Orlando, when they get done with us, they're coming from you, for you, for you and all your interracial children. Y'all are next, and you'll be standing up here fighting for justice just as well as I am. I am so disappointed in the state of Minnesota. My son loved this state. My son loved this city, and this city killed my son, and the murderer gets away. Are you kidding me right now? We're not evolving as a civilization. We're devolving. We have taken steps forward. People have died for us to have these rights, and now we're devolving. We're going back down to 1969. Damn! What is it going to take? Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team. Andres, A. Maria, David Langseth, Kate Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.